0: Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by SuperValue Insurance, offering sound advice for your car, home, and travel insurance needs. First this morning, sitting in front of me, actor, director, teacher, writer, a woman of very many talents. Phil Herbert has written a memoir about her life. It's a tale with many twists and many turns, including having to give up her only child for adoption. It's called The Price of Silence and it's published by Menma Books. Phil, you're very welcome here this morning. Thank you very much, Miriam. Thanks so much for being here. Really interesting memoir. Start off first. Where did you grow up? Tell me about your family.
1: Yes. um, Well, it's sort of the archaeological dig, isn't it? Going back to the first level (laughs) of existence. And that's really why I wrote the memoir. was to write myself into existence, to find out the sort of person I was, what shaped me, what made me. So I was born in a family of 11 siblings, seven brothers, three sisters. My mother was from Wexford. My father was from Dublin. In Turnour went to your Presentation Convent, and every summer we went down to Wexford for our summer holidays, and it was pure bliss. It was absolutely We came back with a Wexford accent, oh. and it sort of created that divide of cultures between the dub and the Kulty type of thing, you know. Yeah. But um, then I went to Sandyman High School, and that was an extremely liberating experience after the nuns, as you can imagine. It was like going from black and white to technicolour. And it was extraordinary atmosphere there. You know, students were allowed to speak. But unfortunately, it was fee paying at the time. So my father couldn't afford to pay after the intermediate. So I was taken out of school and sent to... Secretarial College in Leinster Road, Rap Mines.
0: And then from there, some time later, you went into acting. Tell me about how acting came about.
1: Where did that start? Yeah, I was working in Aer and they had the Aer Musical and Dramatic Society. So that's where it started. And it was there I was in a play where I just had one line um, God, I've forgotten the name of the play. Can you believe it? doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so um, then I heard about the Unicorn Theatre, which was a real basement theatre in a Georgian house in North Great Georgia Street. And uh, I went there and they were auditioning for J.B. Keane's play, The Highest House on the Mountain. <laughs> and I got the lead part in it with no experience. I was extremely gauche. And the director was the author of everything that influenced the rest of my life for 20 years. So basically, you call him Brian in the book, don't you? Yes,
0: yes. You met him. He was very charismatic. You were very attracted
1: to him. But he was married, of course. Yes. So tell me about that. Well, when I met him, of course, I would say, wouldn't I, I didn't know he was married. But he he was like a film star and I wouldn't have had any great experience of film stars. But he was like a man that I never had experienced before. Beautiful voice, uh, just very exciting. And he gave me huge attention and I wouldn't have been Mm. used to that coming from a big family. And um, I was hooked completely. You got pregnant. I got pregnant. How old were you when you got pregnant? Well, 21.
0: What, how terrifying was that at the time? And what? Could you tell your mother and father?
1: No, no. It was just when I found out, I, you know, I went to a German doctor on the north side of the city to avoid the south side. But it was the worst day of my life when I heard I was pregnant because it was like in those days, it was like the end of your life. You didn't exist as a woman afterwards. It, the worst sin in Ireland at the time was sex. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing was to have a child outside of marriage. And also, like, you know, the atmosphere was damaged goods. You were finished. And you also brought shame on your family. So it was just the end. It just marked the end. And that's very hard for young people now to understand.
0: So what were your options back then? You were 21, you were pregnant. He was married.
1: What did he say, by the way, when you said you were pregnant? Oh, he said, are you sure I'm the father? Which really demolished me because I had been extremely innocent. He was the first man Mm. that I ever made love to. In fact, I'm sure it happened after the first time, you know, of having sex. And then he came around, but to him again, he, it was, he was hiding it from everybody. Like at one stage, he said he had a doctor that could perform an abortion. But it was hardly in the ether, the concept of abortion. So I wasn't going down that road. So the th- I had a permanent job in Erlingus, So I decided to, to hide in London, of course. The German doctor set up everything for me, a hostel in Houston Square and uh, then a place in the mother and baby home in St. Patrick's when I came back. So I told my parents that I got a job in Paris and that I was going away to learn French.
0: And they didn't know you were pregnant? No, nobody knew except him. So you worked in London, Phil, for the duration, I think, in the pregnancy. And then you came back secretly to Ireland to give birth. Did it sink in with you at that stage that you would be giving up your little baby? Do you know,
1: I must appear very stupid, but uh, it didn't actually. And it was a case of not allowing myself to process where I was at. I just sort of thought I was in a fantasy drama. You know, it was, yeah. it's ridiculous now to even say it out loud. I, you know, I thought somehow that he would rescue me. And I wasn't able to think about the next steps. It it hadn't entered my consciousness, you know. And when she was born, what did you call her? Brona. Beautiful name. Yes, he, he chose the name. And... Um, you know, obviously, it means sad, uh, sadness, in Irish, "brolnach." Yeah. Um. So I, I was there in the mother and baby home for six weeks, before she went to her real new family. But those six weeks were, it was like being in a boarding school, um, and it was like I was contained in a bubble. Um, I, the girls, you know. I would love to be able to talk to some of those girls now. It was 1967. Yeah, We had a great time. We weren't in the real world at all. It was definitely a bubble.
0: But were you all sad then that your babies were obviously going to be given up for adoption or was it just something no, that seemed so obvious was going well, to happen?
1: Well, you see, it's we hadn't thought about the next step. We had to escape... You know, nobody in the world knew we were pregnant. And the big joy was finding a new family for your baby so that you could escape to freedom. So we left there thinking we were born again virgins. We could start a new life.
0: But you actually, feel as this right now, you phoned after you left the mother and baby home. I think you called and asked for your baby
1: back that you'd changed your mind. Yes, because reality had set in. And what did they say to you? It hit me. Well, the nun there said, you know, there was the public telephone boxes where you put the coins in. And she said, if you don't stop your whinging, we'll have your baby on your mother's doorstep tomorrow morning. And that, again, would have been horror for me the shame of it um, it would be sort of end of life material first of all to shame my family and then i couldn't cope with what was the next step do you know i never had passed it i never developed any way of processing it i just wasn't allowing myself to go there So
0: what was life like after that? I know, I think you went back home. Your family didn't know anything about baby Brona. Were you able, Mm -hmm. Phil, to get on with life
1: with some pretense of normality? Well, the normality came when they sent me a photograph of the baby. (coughs) And the photograph was of a smiling baby looking extremely happy. So that satisfied me and I just understood then she was in a better place. She was with a family who could absorb her as their child and so immediately I think I closed down. The drawbridge came down Mm. and I decided okay time to reinvent myself.
0: And what about you still held a candle for this guy Brian? Oh yes yeah it went on. (laughs)
1: You never it learned. Never learned. And did you I, just love him? I did, actually. Mm. It was like a drug. I, all I had to do was hear his voice, and I was gone.
0: And you
1: kept your relationship. You, did you get pregnant again with him? I did. What happened was um, when he heard that she had written to me. Now I'm getting this all confused. Um, He came around to that, I used to live in Pembroke Road at the time and he used to call in, even though he was living with another woman at the time. And he kept talking about Bruna. So at that stage, I thought I I could get pregnant again. But this time I definitely would keep the baby because I had a permanent pensionable teaching Ah. job. And this time I would tell my parents, my family, my friends... And he seduced me again by thinking, we he you know, he would say we should never have given her up. Let's have another baby. So, like, that's what I fell into. So I did become pregnant. And I remember meeting a very good friend and we discussed the fact that I was going to keep the baby. And she said, oh, God, I've got a pram in the attic and I have a cot. So I was delighted and I was thinking i get a childminder. But then when I went home, discovered I was miscarrying. Wow. And there was sort of that animal instinct in me that wanted to tell him I was pregnant and I'd lost the baby, but he didn't want to know. You got
0: on with your life. You met some great actors because you were involved in the Focus Theatre. Gabriel Byrne, actually, I know you gave him, I think, his first job. Did you in acting?
1: Yes. Well, we talked together. We did the hate strip together in Clough Road which was a terrific vocational school. Many writers and actors started there, like Neil Jordan, etc. So myself, Gabriel, Sheila Murray and Carmel Lynch, we all went to the HDP lectures together. And during that time, we got to know each other. So I was directing a play in the Dublin Shakespeare Society called Coriolanus. So he, I gave him the part of Ophidius. Wow. Well done, you. <laughs> and he's a lovely tribute, actually, in the back of your
0: memoir, Gabriel Byrne. So, look, tell me about the letter, Phil, that arrived from the Eastern Health Board ah, yes. in 1993. I think it was after 26
1: years, your daughter, into. That's right. That is right. Yes, um, It arrived anyway and it was probably the happiest day of my life. I had to go out to see the social worker in Klonski at the time and he told me they had found my daughter. And um, I I remember I had the baby photograph of her in my pocket. So he told me her name, Elizabeth. And I remember cycling home that day and... I was on a little yellow bike, you know, and I was almost floating because I was so high. It was just, it was a sense of joy that I'd never experienced since or before. And that night I was with my friend Celia. We went to see Midsummer's Night's Dream in the Gate Theatre. And I thought, oh, this is my my dream. So when you first matter, your first meeting yeah,
0: with Elizabeth, your Brona. Yes. what yeah.
1: was it like? Oh, it was just wonderful. We fell in love. I fell in love with her madly. She's just so beautiful. And um, I couldn't get over how attentive she was towards me. And um, it was she's very bright, very beautiful and it was it was like meeting uh, a part of yourself, you know, that you had missed all all along. It was mm. the part of the jigsaw puzzle put back there. So we got on extremely well, and for ten years we got on magically. But then it wasn't to be. It was just a huge misunderstanding. Communication went awry. I think possibly my fault. But, you know, you can't recreate the past, so um, things haven't worked out, really. Did she understand, Phil, why she had to be given up for adoption? Oh, very much so. Very much so. She would have. She's a very bright girl. She would have known all about that. But... You know, I missed out on her formative years. You know, there's a bonding that takes place when a child is growing up. I missed all of those steps. I did actually meet her parents and we got on really well. And, you know, this thing of nature, nurture. Yeah. She has a beautiful voice. And when I met her mother, the mother has exactly the same voice. You know, the nurture part, um... So she, she's doing very well at the moment. And she did contact me uh, January 2021. That's after an absence of 20 years. When the commission for the investigation into mother and baby homes came out. And she said, look, I'm thinking about you now. She was the only person who who oh, came lovely, to me. Thoughtful. Very thoughtful. And we did meet. And we we had exchange of emails and we did meet and too much time has passed. You know, I think in those 10 years, we we fell so madly in love that we went at it very quickly. And perhaps I went a little bit mad, you know. (laughs) That can
0: often happen, though. It's been written about before when you... Meet your child has been adopted years later. It can sometimes go awry. It does, mm-hmm. yes,
1: yeah. Well, I know a psychologist said that it's 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 a a fact that sometimes the child then wants to abandon the birth mother. And well, they have an established history that had nothing to do with me, you know. So I'm very sad that it turned out this way because I still love her very much, you know.
0: Well, look. <clears throat> There's lots of time for things to get back on track again. It's a beautiful book. Finally, you wrote this as a memoir. You're writing now, you've retired from teaching, a labor of love for you. What are your feelings now when you look back on your life? Do you think about your younger self? Do you have
1: sympathy for your younger self? I do. I do. And like somebody asked me, like, what wisdom have you garnered from your entire life? And, you know, I I taught communications and I think actually we all have such a lot to learn about the whole process of how we communicate, you know, Mm. and words are very important. And, um, you know, we, we, we can carry hurts without discussing them and I think it's very important that people learn how to to put words on their feelings. Well, you've definitely
0: done that in this book, Thank Phil you. Herbert. It's called The Price of Silence. It's published by Menma Books. It's available from the publisher, obviously, at MemmaBooks.eu, but also it's in lots of bookshops. Book Upstairs to Lear Street, Alan Hannah Rathmines, Charlie Byrne and Galway. And I know you're going to be featuring in Books Upstairs on Sunday, the 28th of January next at 2.30 with Liz McManus and Mary Rose Callahan as part of a panel discussing memoir writing. Phil, wish you the very best. Thank you for being my guest this morning.
1: Thank you very much. Can I say one word about my publisher? Yes, very quickly. Yes. Well, he's just a wonderful publisher. He started very recently. He's in Cork. And I think he deserves great credit for producing such a lovely book. I agree. It's beautiful. <laughs> Phil, thank you so much. Thank you, really. We'll take a break.